0: Hello and welcome to the Diversifying and Decolonising University podcast, I'm Chris Lloyd. This podcast is put together by staff and students at the University of Hertfordshire in the UK. It explores diversifying and decolonising within higher education and looks at those terms in different contexts, subject areas and disciplines. In today's episode, we listened to Peter de Sina talk to Lucas Lachaise about the French university system, laïcité, English and other topics. Peter Descener is an Associate Professor of Learning and Teaching at the University of Hertfordshire and Lucas Lachaise is a full-time lecturer at Université Lyon trois
1: Hello Lucas, thanks so much for talking to us. Um, I've got a few questions to ask you about diversifying and decolonising. And so the first one is, as you are a teacher in France and you teach in the field of English language learning, I wonder, what
2: does decolonizing mean to you? Well, hello, Peter, and thank you for having me. Um, Well, the first thing that I would like to say is that um, in France, traditionally, uh, universities offer language programs uh, which expect students to reach a level of of the language, which is a form of pseudo-native mastery. Uh, which is often based on a standardized variety of English, notably uh, British English or American English. And therefore, uh, most universities um, focus their phonetic classes or other classes on received pronunciation or the Midwestern accent, for example. And those two types of English, the Midwestern accent and received pronunciation, as I said, tend to be considered the standard or academic form of English and therefore we tend to expect our students to learn the same variation of the language. Are you you saying though that in decolonizing the field
1: of English language learning and teaching in France that you are looking at other perspectives and other ways of transmitting the English language?
2: Ideally yes, but I would be honest and tell you that we, we engage more in diversification than actual decolonization, I, I would say, exactly. So uh, when it comes to language departments, for example, they would tend to diversify their curriculum or their curricula when it comes to civilization, literature, and when it comes to um, other things. But when it comes to the actual teaching of the language and the actual methods, there is not much happening, if, if, that, if I may say that.
1: No, it makes a lot of sense. I can see where what, what you're saying. But I know, though, that you teach two different types of students, at least. You teach business school students and you teach political science students. Can you say a little bit more about how you diversify their learning experiences? Are they the same? Are
2: they different? Oh, there are two very different types of students. When it comes to my business ones, uh, actually, I try to deconstruct the way they learn English. So in a way, um, for my business students, they're not specialists of the language. And therefore, I don't really expect them to have an academic mastery of the language. Uh, I focus more on them being intelligible. And therefore, what I try to do when I teach them English is that I try to deconstruct the idea that they need to reach uh, what we call an academic repertoire to be considered professionals. So um, what I try to do, therefore, is to encourage uh, innovation and to try to encourage spontaneity when they speak the language and don't necessarily correct them. So when it comes to those students, and I'm going to try to be as concise um, as possible when it comes to that, but from a linguistic perspective, If I may say, I try to have more of a descriptive approach than a prescriptive approach. And uh, the difference between the two is that, and I'm really sorry if any linguists are listening to this, uh, uh, if I try to vulgarize the concepts, a descriptive a descriptive grammar would simply consider that as long as a native speaker uses it, it is considered linguistically correct. Whereas prescriptive grammar would tend to tell you how you speak the language. And when my students um, learn English or speak English, I usually try to encourage a natural response As long as it is something intelligible what i tend to do however is to tell them that for example let's take a concrete example if my students tend to say something like if i was you i would tell them that it's still linguistically receivable because it is used by native speakers in different contexts however from an academic perspective it would probably be better if they use another form like if i were you am i making, am I making any sense?
1: You are, no, and actually it's a brilliant example. Now, I was going to ask you for for more examples, but so tell me, with the political
2: science students, why is it that you um, take a different approach? So when it comes to my um, political science students, actually, I feel like there is a bit of a paradox because they're actually taking preparatory courses for a national and very competitive entrance exam that is very, very standardized. Therefore, they need to be aware of issues around decolonization and uh, critical race theories and all of those things. However, they have to be eloquent and to write about it in a very standardized and academic manner. So there is a bit of, of a paradox around it because their exercise and the training that I provide them with is extremely academic and in a way we could see it as something of a bit of a, a bit of a neo method if I make any sense. However, they need to be aware of the issues that surround those topics. And therefore, I need to raise awareness on such topics while preparing them to be as academic as possible. And therefore, deconstruction of uh, the academic language that is usually taught is not possible with them because otherwise I would be jeopardizing their ability to enter those, the schools that they're targeting.
1: I, un- I understand. Actually, you've led me to, to what I really am interested in. I'm a historian, and I'm interested in, because I teach in a, a British university, I'm interested largely in the British colonial experience and the coloniality and its legacy. And I'm interested in what examples you use with your political science students in addressing and, and dealing with colonisation and decolonizing.
2: So, for example, the last essay that they had to write was about affirmative action. So, they usually the 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 test that they take is that they have a text that is about 700 words with five comprehension questions, and then they have to write an essay on a topic related to the article that they just read. So, the article that I had them read was actually about representation in Ivy League schools in the U.S. You know, and the reasons why and the reasons why those schools wanted to implement Affirmative action, and also try to implement new um, ways to diversify their um, their their student body in a way. And by taking this example and taking this article specifically, the idea was to raise awareness on some socio-economic constructs that, derivate, that derive sorry, from our colonial past and history. There are some reasons why there are so many inequalities, and especially racial inequalities in the US, and why those inequalities still persist today and are still maintained uh, socially and economically and I think the idea with doing a class like that is to have them reflect on the origins of such inequalities and discrimination and try to see what other countries how other countries are addressing those issues and what approach they're having when it comes to those topics that's really interesting because it allows your students to open their
1: minds with international examples do you and you talked about reflection do you ever have the opportunity to Talk afterwards after they've done these assignments with your students about how they they feel about their
2: experience of learning with you. I would say that um, it depends on the students. When it comes to my political science students, they tend to be more under. Um, they want. They tend to absorb a lot more because they're very conditioned to passing the exam in one way. So what I tend to do with them is to um, have them share all of their ideas and findings and see how they um, argued the case for their own essay. And what's really interesting is that we usually have plenty of different students that therefore have different ideas, different examples, or different arguments to propose. So that's very interesting to do with them. However, when it comes to having a feedback from my teachings, I would say that they expect me, because since this, um, since their, their exam is very standardized and very academic, they expect me to provide them with the academic knowledge and the academic method that they need for the exam. And therefore, they expect my teaching method to be extremely standardized and extremely uh, focused around this very exam. When it comes to my business students, it works differently. I think they they like and they they like the um, that we open that I open discussion around those debates. Again, I don't necessarily um, get into decolonizing, but I get more into diversifying. That's yeah, that's the idea, and I think my students are pretty receptive to it. Uh, well, first of all, there's an actual demand from them, I would say, uh, because they're all they're all. Uh, specializing in international fields, and therefore they will be conducting business abroad, or might go on an exchange somewhere someday. And therefore, there really is a, a demand on their end to understand the intricacies of other cultures and the way other cultures work, and you know, um, conduct business, but also deal with very uh, various um, societal issues. And therefore, I think they appreciate the fact that I open them to. Those ideas, which are quite prevalent in other places, in other countries, and also the idea that it also creates an openness to the rest of the world, because those prerogatives are not something that are really established, especially in business, in fresh business schools, and therefore it provides a new perspective, I would say.
0: Yeah.
1: On the matter of exchange, I've just got to say we do send students to you from our university, the University of Hertfordshire, or at least some of them have an option of a year abroad in Lyon. Have you, um, have you taught any of our students? And if you have, what have they noticed about the differences, about the ways in which race and
2: ethnicity are discussed and viewed in France? So I I don't know if I have any students that come from your university, but I do have a few exchange students that come from the UK. Yeah, especially I I also teach a translation class, uh, which is also very standardized (laughs) if we want to get into that. But when we're talking, if our students uh, come here and start uh, getting interested in the way we discuss things around race or ethnicity and those things, the first thing that they have to know is that race has no legal basis in France we can say that our model wants to be universalist, and therefore we tend to see um, citizens as being equal in their rights and being equal as individuals and not groups. And um, also, um, those racial and statistics and censuses remind us of the wartime Vichy regime, uh, where There were uh, identification methods that were based on race and religion. And therefore, in France, it is now illegal uh, to collect any data on ethnic, racial or religious origin. So there won't be asked any question when it comes to that, and they will find that most of our, st- our studies do not include those elements. We find other elements to try to assess, for example, uh, discrimination, inclusivity, and things like that, but they're never based on ethnic, racial, or religious uh, grounds, if that makes any sense.
1: It does make sense, and it's actually quite fascinating, I think, for us to uh, sit back and think about that, because one, one question, and it, it relates to my to my final question, because one piece of data that we collect in Britain is about the difference between people who fall into, and we use this, uh, it's, it's a bit of a contested phrase uh, of, of identification, but we use the, the phrase BAME, B-A-M-E, Black, Asian, and minority ethnic students. And data is collected about the ways in which they don't achieve as high grades in universities as their white counterparts. And this is called the awarding gap. And I just wondered if, because this is really tricky, isn't it? I suppose if if you don't collect data on on people who fall into those that broad category of black asian and minority ethnic whether there is something which is perceived to be an awarding gap
2: so we would take into elements other uh, we would take sorry into account other elements um, so we would not talk t- talk about uh, we would not take into account their um, racial or ethnic or religious origin but we would take into account their um, socioeconomic status for example or their c- country of origin, or their gender, or maybe if they have a disability. So things around the individual, but nothing that is deemed to be either personal or that would have no scientific or legal basis. Because that, that's actually the whole a bit of the what the question is around when it comes to the use of words like race or racial or things like that is that basically, according to France, uh, there's only the human race and therefore human races don't exist. And we tend to focus on the fact that concepts around race have been debunked biologically to explain why we're not integrating them as well, in, in a way that makes sense. And therefore, when you raise those issues with the students, uh, the fir- their first reaction is that they feel that, oh, if they were asked being about their race or about their um, ethnic background or religious background, would be in with the purpose of excluding them or pointing out their difference from the rest of the group. And I think that... When you point out that actually other countries do it to be able to measure, for example, as you said, this awarding gap between certain groups and others, we have nothing to measure that. And I think that often raises a good question with students and with people in general.
1: Yeah, that, that's fascinating. So are you saying, let me just get this right, that any data collected which looks at that kind of achievement in students is based more on social class? Yep. Uh, social class, yes. Yeah. And therefore, as that is the case, what strategies are there for closing the awarding gap that people experience because they come from a social class which is disadvantaged?
2: Um, so there are a few things that are being implemented, not in, not in public universities, however, because that, that would sometimes uh, include elements that are, would be difficult to justify but um elements like affirmative action or the um raising of uh raising awareness uh, the uh, holding of conferences the have, the holding of discussion groups on on some issues happens in France, and we also have a lot of diversity and inclusive practices, but they're never really related to uh, ethnicity or to race. It can be related to socioeconomic background, or it can be related to gender. We can use some proxy measurements when it comes to something that would get close to race or ethnicity. So for example, we would have a look either at your first or your last name, or maybe the area. Where you come from, because certain areas are known to have more uh, diversity than others. But when it comes to the awarding gap between a potential Muslim student and a potential Christian or something else, student would not be feasible.
1: No, okay, that that's really very interesting. Can can I ask only because I, I really don't know? Tell me about the differences then between public universities and other universities. Then are are, are there different strategies that are permissible?
2: Uh, Well, there are, because the university I work for, Lyon 3, is a public university, and therefore it has to abide to this whole system of being secular, in a way. But the one class where I actually teach political science is a private institution. And it's a private Catholic institution, actually. And therefore, their, um, their funding is different, and the way they work is different, and the way they talk about those issues is different as well. And therefore, for example, that's why, and that's also something that, um, but I, I think I would have to explain a little bit the, the concept behind. We have a, a whole concept uh, in France, which is uh, the concept of laicite, which is the French form of secularism, if I may say. And this French form of secularism might be different from secularism in other countries. And therefore, uh, what is important to know is that it does not discourage the practice of religion, nor does it forbid it. However, it asks the state to show neutrality towards it and ask the people that works for the civil state to show neutrality towards religion. Therefore, they cannot be influenced by it, but they cannot discourage the practicing of it. That makes sense again. It does. I've got I've got one other and it's a
1: very very open question really if you were able to make a change to the French system what would it be in order to improve diversification
2: I think that I would uh, rethink some of the laws that we have around our laicity system uh, I think that our system of laicity is very, very well thought. But uh, some of the laws that were actually enacted quite recently, uh, especially in the early 2000s, tend to be more ostracizing than inclusive, I would say. Uh, notably, when it comes to the absolute banning of religious uh, symbols in public schools, especially it only applies to the secondary school and not necessarily the university ones. But um, when it applies to secondary schools, there, are, I think that some religious groups are more likely to be easily recognizable than others, and therefore some of those laws might be more discriminatory to them. And instead of inviting them to take part into the system, we tend to isolate them from it. Instead of welcoming them as they are, we tend to tell them that they need to adjust to it. And I think it actually also goes against the principles of laïcité itself, because when it was created in the 19th century, uh, it was mostly used as a way to make everybody feel welcome within the public space, whether you were a believer or not. And the past few years, I think it's focused a bit too much on keeping any religious symbol outside of schools, and therefore it's kind of changed the debate around it, and people tend to misunderstand what laïcité really is about.
1: Uh, and one one thing i'd want to know as a historian um in the future and maybe maybe we could talk to some of your colleagues i would love to know more about how french history has become more multi-perspective over the last 10 or 20 years in schools and in universities but that's another that's another podcast altogether isn't it
2: yeah, it sounds like a whole different conversation, which is a fascinating one. And I'm actually quite curious to be asking my co-workers on how they deal with this.
1: Yeah. and The reason I ask, and, and, and I know it's time for us to wrap up now, is that I'm guessing that a number of your students coming to you will have had a different experience of studying history than people did coming into universities 20 or 30 years ago. And uh, that might be, um, like you say, it's another conversation, but it's a very interesting one because I think students' expectations are changing about what they expect to receive in terms of a diversified curriculum.
2: I I completely agree with you. And it is something that I definitely feel as a teacher. There is actual demand uh, on those questions and on the way, to, to, uh, the way to, that we actually see and study things, notably history, and there is um, no, there's definitely, uh, there's definitely been a change. I think which is subtly but surely happening, and I'm quite curious to see what will um, happen in the years to come. But as you said, there is uh, definitely a demand from our student body to uh, reflect on those uh, topics. And it, it, can, it can actually be seen across all fields of study, if I may say. The, and I think that uh, it really shows that there's um, a, an awareness that is uh, taking place. And therefore, we might see changes in the way we teach things, whether it be foreign languages or history or any other form of academic topic.
1: Lucas, I just want to thank you for your time today. I've really enjoyed our
2: conversation all right well thank you very much for your time peter uh, it was a pleasure to talk to you and to discuss these um, topics with you and i look forward to doing it again sometime
0: thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast if you are listening on apple Podcasts, please rate and review us there if you're listening on spotify please do add comments below the episode and get in touch with us via our wordpress or other social media